This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 26, 2019. I'm Megan Cantwell. Sarah and I are still in China, but we will be back next week. This week, we have one more segment from the AAAS 2019 annual meeting. I talk with Jada Ben Torres about what happens when race is used as a risk factor in disease. And in our monthly book segment, Books Review Editor Valerie Thompson interviews author David Rothenberg about his book, Nightingales in Berlin, Searching for the Perfect Sound. I'm here at AAAS annual meeting with Jada Ben Torres, an associate professor of anthropology at Vanderbilt University with a specialty in genetic anthropology. She gave a talk today on how to use biosocial approaches to address health concerns. Thanks so much for joining me today, Jada. You're quite welcome. I'm happy to be here. Your talk was in a session that centered around the shifting boundaries between race, sex, and genes. How exactly does your research area fit into this topic? I work at these intersections between biological and social factors and, and thinking about how that alters human experience. So oftentimes we are taught and actually sometimes we teach models that are not necessarily representative of the reality of most people's experience. So a lot of my work, I think about how do we account for the variation that we know is out there? How do we account for that in you know our studies and in the work that we do to try and make sense of things like health and disease, community identity, et cetera. The health disparity that you focused on in your presentation was uterine fibroids, also known as UF, which are benign tumors found in the uterus. Could you describe how prevalent these uterine fibroids are and what health disparity you were trying to describe? So uterine fibroids, again, these benign tumors that grow in the uterus are super common. By the time women hit menopause, so into their 40s and 50s, upwards of maybe 70 77% of women have them. Of those women who have them, a significantly smaller portion, maybe a third of them, actually develop it to the point where they go to the doctor, where it becomes clinically relevant. This particular condition, it has profound effects on quality of life issues. Sometimes painful periods are associated with it, excessive bleeding, inability to become pregnant or to carry pregnancies to term. It's just a real, really big issue. The gold standard for the cure, if you will, for fibroids is hysterectomy. And for a lot of women, that's extremely invasive and just it's not acceptable. There is a variety of risk factors associated with, with fibroids. So some of this has to do with like body mass index, obesity, age, diet, 
there are biological mechanisms that can help to explain, you know, well, you know, this particular diet might have hormonal effects on the body, which then cause fibroids. But there's one risk factor that's listed pretty consistently, at least in, in U.S. literature, and that's black race specifically. And as an anthropologist, I always found this sort of unsettling. I never understood how something that cannot be biologically defined, so in this case, race, how it can have an effect on biology. Like when you tell someone, hey, you belong to this race, you're more sick because of it, there's no mechanisms to explain what's actually making you sick. So in my own work, I'm interested in, in unpacking, this is a word we love in anthropology, but unpacking what that means. What is it about being a member of any particular race that makes you more prone to one disease versus another? Right, because taking a genetic test and seeing that you have a certain ancestry doesn't mean, okay, now I'm definitely going to get this disease or something like that. Right. There has to be very deliberate, important moves to move away from genetic determinism that your genes are not fate. There's a lot of intervening factors uh, that shape various outcomes and experiences for people. Biologists and sociologists both have different definitions of race and your approach you describe as a biosocial approach. So what does that mean and how does that reconcile between the two different definitions that people kind of operate with with race? There are two different sort of working definitions that you see among social scientists versus biomedical scientists. I would, you know, first note that overall, I think scientists have good intentions. The idea is to alleviate human suffering, but we do tend to get sometimes siloed into particular ways of thinking about human variation. In my research, I'm attempting to sort of bridge this gap to be attentive to social factors of how we understand and experience human variation, but also recognizing that their biological variation is real and you know, potentially has some influence on, on health outcomes. So what I try and do in my work is to really think about how do I bring these two kind of schools of thought together? How do I meaningfully explore what human variation means, being attentive to both social environment as well as biological factors that might shape health outcomes in this case. You looked at the difference in UF internationally. Were there any differences in prevalence of UF internationally that is different within the United States? So it's really hard to make these one-to-one comparisons because a lot of the science that's done in the US, these sort of models that post white women versus black women, those models are being incorporated in other parts of the world where it might not necessarily make sense. Because of the lack of time, I couldn't show some of the media, public health outlets that are geared towards various West African communities. And what you'll see is in their discussion of fibroids, they'll note that it's very problematic. And then they'll say, yes, being black is something that predisposes you to it. But that is a direct result of U.S. models and U.S. science. It's not necessarily something that would make sense in other contexts, particularly in other contexts of multicultural societies, for example. So the picture that's emerging internationally is, at least in my mind, somewhat difficult to to directly correlate to what we see in the U.S. So this is ongoing work. This is work that's actually becoming more central to what it is I do, want to do, because I'm able to access publications about uterine fibroids, but from other places other than the U.S., which makes it really interesting because they don't always use the same sort of racial models that you see within the U.S., For example, some of the papers that I've seen coming out of China really tend to focus on diet and dietary differences. So I think it's an interesting idea to think about, well, 
if in this part of the world diet is something that is seen as important, what about if we ask similar questions in other global settings? One way that you analyzed this was with a pilot study. Could you describe what that pilot study looked at? So in that study, we were looking at genetic ancestry and its relationship to uterine fibroids. There have actually been several published studies that show conflicting results. So there are studies that show, yes, genetic ancestry, particularly African ancestry is, is associated with uterine fibroids and others that don't find this association. So I was trying to look in my own sample, and this was from a biobank, an Indiana biobank. And the idea here is that with shared genetic ancestry, you might be able to, to say something about having a shared evolutionary background. This is not to say that they're of the same racial group, but the idea that an individual's ancestors would have been exposed to various selective pressures, which would have shaped their variation. And with enough people, you know, in a study, the idea is, is really to think about how these broad patterns of genetic variation might be associated with the disease, in this case, fibroids. So in our study, we didn't actually see an association between ancestry and fibroids. It was a pilot study, though, so kind of small. And also, I would add that oftentimes we lump people together into these broad categories, like these census groups, African-American, European-American, when in fact there's a lot of variation within these groups something that we probably ought to pay more attention to because it might actually be kind of important in thinking about variation overall, but also in regard to some of these health outcomes. So not just looking at ancestry, but you also looked into other UF risk factors. And how did you look into how these factors could play into the designation of race as a risk factor? In my work, I'm particularly interested in unpacking these different risk, risk factors, but then thinking about it through the lens of racial experience. So in my talk, for example, I mentioned thinking about diet and how differences in income and earnings can affect the sorts of foods you have access to. Well, if you're getting different foods, you might have different health outcomes because of a result of eating maybe a diet that's high in processed foods and not getting a lot of fresh produce. That can have a biological impact. And it has the consequence of making it look as though there are racial differences, when in fact those differences are a result of, of sort of structural, institutionalized discrimination. Based on the research that you've done, what leads do you have that you think are driving this health disparity? I have ideas about expanding the study and looking cross-culturally, particularly comparing communities that maybe have similar ancestries, broadly speaking, but different environments, different psychosocial environments, different diets, so that we can more thoroughly test or look at the impact, the influence of social environments, psychosocial uh, stress, for example, and how that impacts fibroids. I think there's a really complex interplay between genes and between culture, and it can be really complex to really understand, but the legwork, the effort has to be there on the part of you know scientists to do the work and then to disseminate it so that people can really begin to understand the complexity. Thank you so much. No problem. I'm just happy to do this. Stay tuned for our monthly book segment with books editor Valerie Thompson and author David Rothenberg. They talk about his book, Nightingales in Berlin, Searching for the Perfect Sound, and play some of the music he made with nightingales. Can you bring everything the world has shown you to a career in medicine? Can you learn from the best at world-class hospitals and clinics? Can you realize a new career out of newfound passions? You can at Columbia University School of General Studies post-bac pre-med program, the oldest and largest program of its kind 
Columbia post-bac pre-med program is known for its rigorous approach to medical school preparation. You'll receive an Ivy League education delivered by a world-renowned faculty experienced in teaching post-bac, non-traditional pre-med students. Post-bac students are both recent college graduates and experienced professionals with backgrounds unrelated to healthcare. The program's small size makes for a supportive and dynamic learning environment. Dedicated academic and personal advisors, research-backed support programs, and an inclusive student community will help guide you every step of the way. And up to 90% of graduates are admitted upon first application to American medical schools. To realize your future in medicine, visit gs.columbia.edu slash premed. That's gs.columbia.edu slash premed. The fall regular decision application deadline is June 15th. Apply today. Welcome back to the book segment of the Science Podcast. I'm Valerie Thompson, the book review editor here at Science. Today, our guest is David Rothenberg, a professor of philosophy and music at the New Jersey Institute of Technology, who's here to discuss his new book, Nightingales in Berlin, Searching for the Perfect Sound. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for inviting me. This book and the album by the same name that you released earlier this year it centers on an unusual musical collaboration. Can you describe the collaboration a little bit and how it came to be? Yes. Well, I've written several books now about music and nature, starting with Why Birds Sing a decade and a half ago. That was about birds and music in general. Then I did a book on whales, Thousand Miles Song, and then one on insects and music called Bug Music. That was the last one. And after that, I realized that what interested me most about this whole process is not just the music in nature, but humans collaborating with musicians out in nature. And I'd heard that in Berlin, there were a lot of nightingales singing long throughout the nights in April and May every year. And I spent a sabbatical year there. And one of the things I was doing there was getting all kinds of musicians to go out and play music to sing and play different instruments live with these amazingly musical birds that go on and on through the night. What does a nightingale do when you, when you try to make music with it? Well, the great thing about nightingales is they are known, of course, for the intensity and their tenacity. They, they will not stop. They only stop when they want to stop. And they are musically defending their territories, expressing their love, looking for a mate. And this has been celebrated by poets and writers of fiction and nonfiction and spiritual thinkers all over the world for hundreds of years. But to actually experience this is still an amazing thing. Nothing substitutes for being out there and just taking it in. So they're going to keep singing. They're just going to sing in the face of you making your music. Do they respond? How do they react? That's the subject of the book. Sure. So I think here I'd like to play a clip of the Bori sound. Yes. Well, this one sound, the booty sound is the sexiest sound. And that's the sound that, um, among all the sounds that male nightingales make, this is the one the females like the most. And it's going, it's like, it's this one sound very hard for, for people to make. And uh, the name Buri sound, it, it comes from my friend Korhan Erel, Turkish musician. 
I thought when he said, oh, you know, you know, you know, that booty sound that he was some sort of <laughs> Turkish word. But he said, no, I was just trying to say bluesy and you just didn't hear me correctly. <laughs> but then I liked the phrase too much. I thought I would just promote it in this book. And so you heard it here. That's not in the book, that story. By the way. It's just presented as, uh, you know, and you, you might wonder, well, how did some scientists figure that out? that this was the sexiest sound. Well, they presumably, they just played a lot of nightingale sounds to female nightingales and observed their reaction and measured it somehow. Mm -hmm. And I think you talked a little bit about, then why don't the male nightingales, why don't they just make that sound? The scientific paper on this topic says, if this is such a sexy sound, why don't the birds just go, (laughs) and of course, any musician listening should laugh because whatever your best licks are, you can't use them all the time. I mean, come on. <laughs> what, do, what do you do with the wah-wah pedal? You just use it occasionally at the right moments. You, you can't overdo the best things. The aesthetic sense of nightingales and what works in their music is not so different from what works in human music. Um, that's a great segue. So let's talk a little bit about music in general. There's actually a lot we don't know about what's so compelling to humans about music. So you mentioned, for example, that we spend a lot more time listening to music than we ought to, biologically speaking. Do you have a a theory as to why that might be? Well, you know, I think people and other animals, we do a lot of stuff just because we want to do it. You can't explain (laughs) it all. Like, just think about yourself, anyone you know, are we really rational beings? Are we following some exact plan? I think Other animals are no doubt similar. They do what feels good, what they like, what intrigues them. And everything is not following some sort of engineered plan of rigorous purpose. You know, purpose is out there, but it doesn't explain everything. Evolution produces beauty that's hard to justify. Creatures are doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And music is one of those things. And we're not the only species that makes it. Sure. I guess that's just probably highlighting a, a difference in how we think, you know, me as a, as a scientist, which I think is another theme that you really explore in this book. So you talk about the idea of how what we know depends on the types of questions we ask. And then you write that science and art of nature do not always mix easily because science and art have different criteria for the truth. How are our criteria different and how are your questions, you know, as a musician or as a philosopher, how are those questions different from the ones a scientist might ask? Yeah, that's great to bring that up. And this, I think, maybe the single most important idea in this book for those who want to combine these different human approaches to knowledge. What's the criteria for artistic truth? You you make a work, you do something. If it's beautiful, if it touches people, I can play one duet with a nightingale. And if it's beautiful and either people or birds listening are, are moved by this, it succeeds. But then I might start to ask, what's really going on? Is the bird responding to me? Am I really responding to the bird? That becomes something a scientist might study. They would say, do it a thousand times. Let's measure what's going on. Let's get some statistical analysis. Let's prove that something real is happening here. And of course, you know, well, some things we can prove, some things we can't in life and art. So you seem kind of skeptical about this idea that science can really interrogate the aesthetic qualities of a song, especially in other species, but you're collaborating with a team of neuroscientists that study birdsong. Can you describe that collaboration a little bit and what sorts of things you've been able to learn together? Yes. I mean, I would say I'm not skeptical of this. 
I'd say when I first wrote on this topic in writing Why Birds Sing, I was much harder on scientists then. And so, so, most of them were angry with me. They said, come on, we have enough problems without you. <laughs> can't, you can't you help us? Except one scientist, Ofer Chernikovsky, as I say in this book, he said, okay, you want to analyze more complex bird song? We want to use our methods to go after something more complex than a zebra finch, a bird of which thousands of neuroscientists study all over the world. You want to look at nightingales, mockingbirds. Okay, we'll do it. Let's work on your questions. Mm -hmm. And so in the course of this collaboration, I learned just how hard it is to do science of uh, animal communication and of complex animal vocalization. And pretty soon the scientists were deep into aesthetics and trying to... Um, make sense of what they also heard as being beautiful, interesting, complicated. What does it all mean? I think this would be a good place for us to play a clip from your piece, Willow Wind. So we'll do that. And then could you describe a little bit what we're listening to? Okay, so this piece uh, is called Willow Wind because I'm playing an instrument that traditionally is made out of a, a willow stalk called a seljafloita, a Norwegian overtone flute. And this actually is the part of Nightingales in Berlin that takes place in Helsinki. Helsinki is the other European city that's full of nightingales. It's got a different species. They're a little more rhythmic. They sound more like DJs scratching records. It's called the thrush nightingale or in Latin, Lucinia, Lucinia, a phrase that the copy editors keep trying to correct in my book. So I'm playing this instrument that just plays the natural harmonic series along with a thrush nightingale. And of course, in Helsinki, you have this problem. It doesn't get dark at night because it's so far north. And the nightingales are really, really upset about this. They don't sit still. They move a lot. You know, in the darkness, they sit still on a perch on a branch singing. But in Helsinki, where the midnight is light, they're just moving around. Mm -hmm. They kind of are a little agitated during the whole proceedings. In the title and throughout the book, you mentioned this idea of the perfect sound. What do you mean by that? What is the perfect sound? Well, in one sense, I'm, I'm echoing the notion of how the aesthetics of nightingale song supposedly evolved through sexual selection. These nightingales are competing with song to try and sing the best, the perfect song, the one that will really attract a mate and really impress the other males to think that, oh, this guy is really the best singer. Like this is how something so complex is supposed to have evolved in nature because otherwise it's a huge waste of energy, time, and it's dangerous to sit out on a branch singing all night. And in Berlin, you can certainly see owls hunting the nightingales, swooping around, ready to grab one off a branch, because they're so loud and easy to spot. It's pretty reckless behavior, and yet they do it for the love of music and for the, you know, this is how you defend your territory, this is how you find a mate. Of course, not every nightingale succeeds at that, and some of the best singers are the ones who keep refining their song. No one's paying attention. All the mates have been taken. They keep singing and singing and singing. So the best music might come from unrequited love in the world of nightingales. Why do you think they keep singing? 
They have to keep doing it. They can't stop. We we know from the research of Eric Jarvis, you know, at Duke and Rockefeller University that dopamine is released when birds are singing. So they're addicted to it. They have to sing. Don't just think it's some mechanical purpose, you know, that, that it's... It's improper use of science to try and explain away the beauty of birdsong. Like, that's not what science is saying. It's just saying that um, things might have a function, but that doesn't explain why any being would do it. Human music might help you find a mate, but it's not the best way to do that. We do it for other reasons. And don't think that science says everything in nature has an exact planned purpose. Wouldn't, I would never make such a claim. Right. Never, uh-huh. never in a million years. Yeah, right. <laughs> I just heard a talk right now. I just came from a talk by someone from the National Science Foundation listing the 10 criteria for NSF grants over the next 10 years. And one of them was investigating the rules of life, which actually this project is in some ways part of because we're trying to find what are the rules for the best uh, Nightingale song. Mm-hmm. That is a good question for scientific investigation. We can figure that out. And it's not the loudest. It's not the most or the longest. It's something more complex like any human aesthetics. And one interesting thing I say in the book that um, Christina Roski at the Max Planck Institute of Empirical Aesthetics, this actually exists, it's in Frankfurt. She's found out that when nightingales sing very fast phrases like, they're not exactly even the way a machine might be. They have this unevenness similar to what happens in human music when you're playing something really fast and you're told to play it with feeling and humanity and emotion. The same kind of uneven evenness, which is something you can measure in human music or in bird music, the same quality is there. And that's one of the specific things we can measure that that shows that hmm, there is something musical. There's a musicality in the sounds made by these amazing birds that just go on and on through the night. Has making music with other species changed the way that you think about our place in the world? That's a great question. Of course it has. First of all, it changes what I think is musical and how I make music with humans. Like I hear these sounds as uh, new musical material, new inspiration. And, and I, I love getting other people to do it too by, by dragging them into this process. And I love recording someone to sing along with the nightingale for the first time. What happens? What does it sound like? And then hear how their music changes after they do it more and more. And then it also makes me realize that I am connected to the natural world and and should be very careful with it and, and, and shouldn't plow it down, shouldn't destroy it, shouldn't, you know, should listen closely. And then I, I feel like I'm connected to the surrounding environment where I live, where I'm traveling. I'm part of it and not separate from it. And when you're connected to something, you're going to think twice, three times, think more times before reckless behavior in relation to to this natural world that makes us all possible, that we so need to survive, that's under so many kinds of threats today. So I think to close the segment, we're going to play play it out with um, your song, Sharawaji Blues. Can you describe that song a little bit to us? Yeah, okay. The Sharawaji word comes from the Sharawaji effect, a fairly obscure historical idea of uh, comes from garden design in the 16th century, basically, the idea that there's an effect if you lay the plants and design your park in a certain way, it's perfect. It's this perfect place you don't want to leave. And the 
Sharawaji effect in sound is this perfect sound that you find out there. It all makes sense. You find a way to fit in. You want to join in with this. You don't want to stop. This recording I made in Helsinki after hours and hours of playing with this one bird and trying to film him and he wouldn't sit still. He kept darting around and the whole project was seeming so ridiculous. We had done it like six days in a row, no sleep up in the middle of the night. It seemed so pointless by then. And so this is my favorite recording of the whole project. Whereas at the time I thought it was the most ridiculous and the worst. (laughs) So you don't always know what you're doing. And so I start by imitating sounds of the nightingale, flicking the clarinet keys without playing them and just try and interact along with this bird. By now, I know him. I know what he's going to do. I know the kinds of things he's singing. I know that he's. I can be right next to him and not see him. He's not going to stop. He's going to keep doing this stuff. So it's like, we're. I mean, I'm in his face. I'm right next to him. And it's like, this is it. <laughs> well, on that note, um, I think we're going to have to wrap up today. David, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts, or you can listen on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. To place an ad on the Science Podcast, contact midroll.com. This show was produced by Sarah Crespi and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.